We are in Second uh, Samuel, the uh, 24th chapter. Now, we just finished reading about King David and his mighty men. <laughs> that was pretty cool stuff. And then we hit chapter 24. Now, we're kind of winding down here. This is the last chapter of, uh, of, of, first, of, of Second Samuel. Then we're done. We just first Samuel, second Samuel. Then we're going to jump into Kings, uh, and uh, but we're not going to go through everything in Kings. Some of it is like, Ugh. but uh, we will jump through and just kind of hit some of the neat highlights that are through it. Uh, what basically happens uh, as, after these different kings is just a historical record of. These different men who became king, the next guy became next guy, became how they kept getting further and further away from God, and God finally had had it with the nation and brought big judgment on them and carried them off into captivity. It was like the major serious butt-kicking in the Old Testament, and uh, it was rather effective. It seemed to have cured uh, Israel of a lot of its uh, problems. But uh, what we're doing is we're wrapping up King David here and then looking at King Solomon which is one of the most amazing kings in the history of mankind. And uh, that'll be real interesting. And then we'll kind of just jump from there to the stuff that's just all the highlights. Now, chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, let me explain to you how confusing that is, if that wasn't confusing enough. What the writer is writing is that uh, David is basically going to sin. He's going to do something God had told these guys not to do. You're not supposed to take a big census and count all the uh, mighty men and and how many, you know, how big, strong your army is and all this kind of thing because God did not want these guys to get cocky and trust in their own strength, wanted them to trust him uh, and, and in God's strength. So it's one of the things they weren't supposed to do. So anyway, so David does it. And the way the historical writer here says, well, God was really ticked at Israel. And so God causes David to sin so he can punish Israel, which is pretty bizarre. Okay. Now, uh, flip over once to Chronicles. First Chronicles, the 21st chapter. Now, Chronicles... Uh, what we start happening, what we start happening here in the uh, in the uh, Old Testament, is uh, some duplicating books that tell the same history, but you know, covering different little things and stuff. It's kind of like the New Testament version of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've got four Gospels telling the same story, the same account, but each one looking at it from a little bit different viewpoint. So we have that here in this historical record. You've got First Samuel, you got Samuel, and you got Kings, and you get Chronicles that kind of covers both uh, as they chronicled the history of of Israel. Um, now look at how they record this in chapter twenty-one, verse one. It says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Of Israel. Now, a couple of things to note uh, here. First of all, <clears throat> these historical records, I mean, these aren't prophecies. These aren't uh, divine revelations per se. These are historical records. These guys wrote down 
what they saw and what they experienced. Um, one of the things as you look at the Bible is there, with, without a doubt, you see the inspired word of God through the whole thing, bringing it all together and how all these different men uh, and women recorded all this stuff and how it all agrees so amazingly well. But there is still a human element involved in some of these things, okay? And you see that here. What happens is the writer, in Samuel's record, they're writing and they see this event. David does this and they reason, well, probably because God was mad and God wanted to trip him up so he could punish him. Well, that's this guy's version of that. You see what I'm saying? He was kind of going for the why behind it. Whereas the guy in Chronicles is saying, Satan did this to mess up David. Now, you have to remember, this is thousands of years ago. And a lot of these guys, a lot of times you'll read in the Old Testament, all kinds of bizarre things that'll happen. And the guys that record it, we've we've stumbled over some of these where it says that the Lord did it or it was God's will that such and such did it. And, and there's really no record that God said one way or the other. It's just that that's the way they said it. It's, it's Eastern culture. This is thousands of years before Jesus was born. Um, their understanding of God at this point is pretty basic, not very terribly deep at this point. It's kind of like if you were to look at, uh, you know, even like in, in the Eastern culture today where there's, you know, Islam and stuff like that and so much of everything that happens, they refer to it as the will of Allah. You know, if Allah wills, it'll happen. You know, if a guy gets drunk and drives too fast and crashes, it was the will of Allah. Everything's the will. You know what I'm saying? There's some Christians, by the way, who think like that too. They think everything that happens was God. Why did God do that? Why did God let this happen? What? Ho, ho, chill out. God is not up there, Mr. Marionette, just making everybody do stuff. Because I'm pretty sure if he did, he'd make you stop doing whatever you're doing. Some of you anyway. I guess that's not the way it works. God isn't controlling every little thing that goes on. Okay, God's at work, Satan's at work. It's kind of a free market deal here. It's called free will. That's why there will be a judgment day. Because we will all give an account for what we did. If God makes everybody do everything and everything's a matter of God doing this or that, then what's judgment day about? God made us do it. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so uh, this is a very simplistic view of it must have just been God's will. David did this thing, so God must have had him do it because God controls everything. Again, a simplistic view. I go with the writers of the Chronicles. I think they had a much more accurate why something just happened, more like a New Testament viewpoint, that Satan rose up and caused him to mess up. How many of you think that's a little more accurate? I mean, that's what happens. Satan comes in, he messes you up, he puts you in bad situations, he causes you to fall. I mean... Nobody forces you to fall. He just puts just, you know, you just hang enough temptation in. If you're not being smart and do something stupid, you're going to get yourself in trouble. But it wasn't God who did this to you. You did it. Satan tripped you up, but you weren't being smart. Okay, so that's a more accurate thing. Uh, another thing to notice here, too. This is the kind of stuff where you'll get some intellectual pinheads who hate the idea of Christianity and hate the idea of God who come along and say, the Bible's full of contradictions. Oh, contrary, contrary, you can't believe the Bible's all full of contradictions. And they'll point to something like this. Here it says, God did it. The exact same thing, it says, Satan did it. Okay? Now, the point isn't what they thought was behind it. The point was they were recording what happened. That is accurate. It's like the Gospels. You've got these four accounts of the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus. They are amazingly similar. 
But there are little discrepancies. One a little bit worded this way, one a little bit worded that. There are all kinds of, you know, all kinds of, of contradictions. And they, they miss the whole point. For example, on, on, the, on the resurrection morning, each one uses a little bit, di- little bit different uh, report of what happened on resurrection morning. And people who don't want to believe in God will say, well, you know, this one didn't exactly agree with this. That was a contradiction. Hey, the point was, Jesus came out of the tomb. It's like they missed the whole point. You know what I'm saying? So while, while people will come up with that, don't let that s- cause you to stumble. You have to understand something. God, if God wanted all of this to be absolutely perfect, he wouldn't have had people write it. Are you hearing me? He could have got a, a bunch of angels. What, I don't want angels do all day. You got time. Come on now, you write it. You know, it would have been perfect and everything would have been absolutely, you know what I'm saying? There is a human element. To, but even with the human element, to not see the hand of God in all this, is you'd have to be blind, which is exactly what a lot of these people are. They're blind to spiritual truth. They don't want to believe in God. They'll look for any reason in the world that they can find to blow something off. The point here is the story which we're about to read. Not what the writer thought was the motive behind what was going on. Does this make sense to anybody? Okay, so, clearly, from a New Testament viewpoint, we would agree with Chronicles where he said, this is really Satan that messed him up, tripped him up. He did something he wasn't supposed to do, and Satan snared him. Because we know from the New Testament teaching, God doesn't tempt people to mess up and fall into sin, and then point at him and say, whoops, you sinned. Okay, God doesn't do that to people. All right, so anyway, what was it that he did? He went and counted all these people. He wasn't supposed to do it. In fact, Joab, even Joab, Mr. Pain in the Butt, Joab, who, you know, <laughs> routinely would kill people that he didn't like, that he wasn't supposed to. Remember the last guy, he, you know, snuck up to him and said, how you doing, man? Good to see you. And just ripped out his innards and his intestines spilled out. And he just let him bleed slowly to death on the ground. Joab was, he had issues. All right, something wrong with this boy. And Joab was the guy who'd get in David's face and really challenge him and stuff. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But even Joab says to, to uh, and challenges the king on this. So he, says, so he says to the king, David says to the king, and, and to Joab and the army commanders, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I, can may, I may know how many there are. And they all knew you don't do this. So Joab, big fat jerk Joab, replies to the king, may the Lord... Your God, multiply the troops a hundred times over. And may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? And other words, he challenges, why are you doing this? You shouldn't. I mean, God bless you. I, I pray that we have more fighting men than we'll ever need. And you'll see it everywhere you go. But don't count them all. God told us not to do that. The King's word, however, overruled Joab. And David insisted on doing the wrong wrong thing. Again, because Satan had tempted him into this deal. Uh, And uh, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So they go do it. They went and, you know, signed everybody up to find out exactly how many people were there. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town in the gorge and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. Anyway, verse eight, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It took them that long to count all these guys. And Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 
there were 500,000 men. Well, then David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, which, you know, know, David should know better, but it was a couple of times where David messed up. The biggest was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband. And then this, and as is often the case, people do what they want to do, and they force the issue, and as soon as they do it, guilt strikes them. God help us to be conscience stricken before we do something wrong. Somebody say amen. Amen. (laughs) Let the spirit of God get a hold of you. In fact, the Bible says, let the spirit of God play umpire in your heart. He's the ruler. He's the one, you know, and a lot of times people are often saying, you know, how do I know God's going to speak to me? How do I, it isn't really so much that God goes around telling everybody what to do. I just don't believe that. If you don't agree with me, get in line. But, you know, I just just don't think that's the way it is. It's more like if you're going to do something wrong, if you're being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, he blows the whistle. And you stop. Okay? The umpire. And literally in the Greek it says, when it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, it means play play the umpire in your heart. This is how the Holy Spirit checks you. Now, if God shows up and an angel appears to you and tells you something directly, I'd advise you go with that. But short of that, (laughs) you know, short of that, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Okay? But pay attention. And listen, and it's like a referee on the field. When you're um, playing football, you know, you're playing, they only blow the whistle if you mess up. Right? Okay? I mean, they don't come to the line and then look at the ref and say, what do we do? What do you mean? Or do I run it or throw it? The ref's going to say, I don't care, play the dumb game. You know what I'm saying? So they don't say anything. They're supposed supposed to be quiet unless somebody does something wrong. And that's what the Holy Spirit should be playing in your heart. When you're about to do something, you start going down the wrong path, and all of a sudden something inside you goes, hold it. When you start feeling that, slow down. Pay attention. This is God's will of giving you conscience stricken before you do stupid. It's easy to feel bad after you've done stupid. I am well versed at this, actually. I don't... I'm very good at this. I, I'm good. I do something stupid. I'm great at feeling like garbage after that, okay? You know, the deal is if you're getting spiritual is that you go, ah, ah, and it grabs you before you do stupid. Everybody say before. before. That's right. Don't wait till after. So anyway, he does this and all of a sudden, now he feels bad. Well, hello. Then he says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And isn't that us? We sin, and we feel so bad for our sin. And then we cry, oh, God, please, please, I feel so bad. I feel, take away the guilt. Uh, again, more that we should do this before than after. I've done a very foolish thing. Well, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet. David seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I'm giving you three options. You've ticked me off. I'm giving you three options. You get to pick which one you want. They're all bad, by the way. So Gad went to David and said to him, There shall come upon you three years, shall there come upon you three years of a famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of H1N1 in your land. <laughs> Actually, it's a lot worse than H1N1. 
A plague, a plague, a poisonous bug. You talk about no, not wanting to hug anybody then. I mean, this, this, this is nasty stuff. So think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. In other words, you know, God told me, he said, here, A, B, or C. So look at it. You know, do you want to go through, through years of famine? Do you want your enemies to pursue you uh, uh, for three months? Or do you want three days of plague? Well, David said, oh, I am in deep distress. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So he's thinking, I would, if I'm going to fall into anyone's hands, uh, let me fall into the hands of God. So, um, which is his way of saying, I, I definitely don't want to do the running from the enemies thing. He thought he'd have more mercy uh, being thrown into God's hands. So, be it. And then the Lord sends a plague on Israel from that morning till the end of the time designated. So, um, 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Holy cow. You know, I thought he was taking the easiest option. You know, three years of famine, three months of running, or three days of... I'll take the three days. 70,000 people died from some mysterious plague, boom, dropping like flies. When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these are just but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. He's basically saying, you know, kill me. Don't kill them anymore. And, uh, and God, as David predicted, was merciful. Although still, 70,000 people. Wow. So on that day, Gad went to David, this prophet, and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, however you say it, the Jebusite. So, Basically, this angel stops. He's heading to Jerusalem to bring the plague there. And God finally says, stop. And, and this angel stops at Arona's, whatever his name is, the Jebusite's threshing floor. That's where he stops. And David saw the angel. Now, I don't know what he saw. I don't know how he knew to see it. I don't know how they know it was an angel. I who knows? I'm just telling you what they're telling us here. So this prophet says, you better go to that where that uh, angel stopped. And... Uh, uh, deal with it, go build an altar and sacrifice to the Lord. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arana saw, looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. He's honored. Here comes the king. All of a sudden he's showing up. And uh, Arana said, why has my lord the king come to a servant? Obviously, this guy was unaware that the death angel is standing on his property. He said, hey, what y'all doing here? David could see it. Somehow he knew it. Okay, and the prophet knew it. But this death angel who's coming out to kill you stops right there. He said, well, why have you come? He said, well, I've come to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Well, the guy says to David, well, let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are threshing sledges and yoke ox for the wood. O king, Arana gives all this 
to the king. May the Lord your God accept you. Now I talked about this last week and I touched it on it on Sunday as well. When we heard the story how David had merely whispered, Man, I wish I could get a drink of water from the well at Jerusalem. And how these men went and busted through the Philistine lines, got him a bucket full of water, busted back through the lines and brought it to the king to drink. But he wouldn't drink it because he was a man of character. And he said, this water represents great sacrifice. I will not partake of something that doesn't cost me something. And he poured the water out. Now again, if I'd have been the guys, I'd have been really ticked. You know, I'm going to get you water. You better drink the water. All right. But I talked and encouraged, you know, don't be what I called bucket suckers. Don't be the kind of people who just freely come and enjoy everything, but it costs you nothing. Don't be the kind of person who never gives or contributes. I'm not telling you what to give. I'm just saying to think in terms of, I need to be involved. I need to give something. I will not just partake of of all of this and it doesn't cost me anything. You're sitting like a sense of entitlement. Like, well, I, I just get this. I just deserve this. You know, nice place. Hey, where'd somebody fill up my bucket? It's empty here. Okay? Now look at this situation. David comes and he wants to sacrifice and worship God on this threshing floor. And this guy says, oh, by all means. Uh, look, I got all these oxen. I've got uh, the wood. Uh, everything is yours. You can have it. But the king replied, no. I insist on Paying you for it. This is not a man who thought in terms of entitlement. This is not a man who sat comfortably letting others sacrifice while he sacrificed nothing. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Whoa, God help us to get some of that in our heads. So David buys the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered the prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Wow. All right. First and second Samuel in the can. Starting with first Kings. Now when David was old and well advanced in years... He couldn't keep warm at night. He had the chills all the time. Even when they put covers on him. So his servant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that when so the Lord the king may keep warm. This 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 is this is this is a serious hot water bottle here. <laughs> I got to tell you, if you got to choose between a hot water bottle and a gorgeous babe, you know, these guys were on top of stuff. All right. Now, of course, they didn't have hot water bottles back then, and they didn't have such things, or I'm sure that's all they would have come up with. They literally had to find someone to lie with the king. Now, uh, he wasn't having sex with her, as we'll see in just a second. She was literally just a warm body, because the guy was so cold, he couldn't stay warm at night, so they put... A young girl there. I got a bite for the girl, wouldn't it? I mean, who'd want that job? What do you do? I sleep with an old guy. <laughs> I'm a hot water bottle. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm very good at it. Well, I'll check it out. He's the king. 
they treat him with the utmost respect. They just don't get any red-blooded girl. Which anyone would have done, quite frankly. They're all warm, I would assume. Not from personal experience, but I'm assuming they're all warm. Clarify that for the record. But no, 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 no. They wanted to find the most beautiful girl they could find. So they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl. And they found Abishag. She was a Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. Indeed, if you go over the entire country to find the best looking baby can, chances are she's going to be a babe. So that's who they find. And she took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations with her. She was just a hot water bottle. All right. Now, Adinijah, whose uh, mother was Haggith. Um, this is the mother of Absalom and Tamar. Remember, Tamar was like this. Gor- this was the gorgeous family, remember? And, and Absalom was, what was that guy's name we were talking about last week or a couple of weeks ago? Huh? Fabio. Yeah, he was the Fabio of the Bible. He's like totally gorgeous, you know. And his hair cut. Huh? Because you reminded me last week who it was. You're not Fabio. Forget about it. (laughs) He says, why are you looking at me? No. Um, So, you know, so, you know, Absalom was like drop dead gorgeous. His sister was drop dead gorgeous and this is one of the brothers this is the gorgeous line so you know mom must have been quite the babe all i can figure good genes on that side of the family so he steps up and he decides i will be king now again i I, they don't tell you everything here but my understanding i know he's older than solomon he probably is the oldest one left at this point this would be a normal thing the kingdom always went to the next oldest son. I mean, it's been that way forever, and even in kingdoms to this day, it's still pretty much done that way. So he said, well, I'm gonna put, I will be king. I'm the oldest, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. So, you know, it's just a big ego thing when he's trotting along. 50 men would just be jogging in front, you know, just a big show of power and stuff. And obviously it was acting rather arrogant. Now, Pops... Uh, never interfered with him by saying, why are you acting this way? Why do you behave as you do? David never really confronted him. But David's old at this point, And David really, as wonderfully as he was, and such a man of God as he was and stuff, uh, didn't really keep his children in line. Clearly he had issues with his children. They were giving him all kinds of grief. And, and anyway, it says he was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. He's part of the beautiful family. Okay, so he's another you know, hunkadori running around. So anyway, uh, Adinijah uh, confers with Joab, who was the general of the army. Joab. This is the same Joab that had his issues, killing people that shouldn't be killing, and, you know, but he was David's best general, and so he confers with Joab, and then Abathar the priest, which is also a priest uh, that had worked for David, and, uh, and they gave him their support. Now, I don't see anything really cynical here. I, it, it seems as though we're missing something. And I, uh, I've read it and, uh, and, and looked at Chronicles and stuff like that. Um, the only thing I can figure is, we'll see in a minute here, where Bathsheba comes in and she's upset because 
she says, hey, you promised that Solomon would be king. So maybe the, the thing that's getting him in trouble here is that they all knew that David had said that and were doing this on their own. It's the only thing I can figure. Because if you take it at face value, there's really nothing out of line here. He's the next oldest. He should be the king. He talks to whatever. The other thing, too, that's problematic is he should have gone to his father to have his father make a big announcement and stuff like that. And he didn't. He did it on his own. So he had his own. That's another problem with it. But anyway, but he gets Joab and Abathar, who should know better, to go on his side. But then you've got Zadok, Benaniah, Nathan the prophet, Shimei. You remember Shimei? He's the guy that cursed at David when he was... Uh, First leaving Israel, and then when he comes back, he's kissing back up to him. I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, you know. So, but Shimei's on the right side this time, and Ray, uh, David's special guard, they did not join Adinajah. So, Adinajah then sacrificed sheep and cattle and fatted calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials. But he did not invite Nathan, Benaniah, or uh, special guard or his brother Solomon. Well, so uh, this is the first inclination here that he knew these guys weren't on his side. Intentionally did not invite Solomon, but invited the other brothers. Why not? Well, maybe he knew. Again, uh, we just kind of assume that he must have known David was up to this. It's the only thing I can figure. Um, so then Nathan, uh, who is the prophet, asks Bathsheba. This is Nathan who did not go along with what Adinajah is doing. Uh, asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have have you heard about Adinajah? He's become king without David knowing it. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Because he knew if this guy really became king, he would probably swing in to uh, eliminate Solomon and his mom. Why would that be? Again, the only thing you can figure is that he had to have known that was David's intention, although we haven't read it up to this point. Okay, so you got to kind of back up a little bit and run around and kind of figure out. So it's got to be because they were—they knew what David wanted and they were doing something David didn't want. And if it was going to Solomon, then they'd try and kill Solomon. So he's trying to save their necks here. So he says, you better go into King David and say to him, my lord, the king, did you not swear to me, my servant? Surely Solomon, your son, will be king after me. So he knew about it. So this is how it's got, it must have been known to Adinajah that was going on. So then how come Adinajah has become king? While you were still there talking with the king, I will come and confirm what you've said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shunammite, the gorgeous babe, was attending him. And Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king, and he says, what's up? What's happening? What do you want? And she said, my lord, you yourself swore to your servant, uh, to the Lord your God, that Solomon shall be king after me. Now this is real interesting. Why David did this, we don't know. We don't know that uh, God necessarily wanted this one way or the other. Maybe he did. You know, we're not seeing any of this. So I don't know. Certainly God's favor falls on Solomon in an incredible way, which we're going to read about, which is truly amazing. Um, But uh, it was out of order to ignore the older son for the younger son. And of all the wives that David had, it was the illegitimate wife. Remember, the only reason Bathsheba's there because of lust, lying, adultery, and murder. I mean, this isn't exactly the most ideal scenario. But he really loved this woman and made the promise that your son Solomon, he's the one who's going to be king. And all of it all sounds a little dysfunctional and strange to me. I don't get it. I don't have all the answers, but that's what he said. 
So anyway, she complains to him that Adinajad is doing this and she's afraid that, you know, Solomon's going to come and kill her and, and, and Solomon. And um, so she's freaking out. So in verse 22, while she's still speaking, the king shows up. Or, or while she's speaking with the king, Nathan shows up, as he said, I'd, I'd walk in at a certain time. And he did. And he told the king, and, and they told the king, hey, Nathan, the prophet's here. So he went before the king and bowed down. And Nathan said, have you, my lord, the king d- declared that Adinajah shall be king after you? will sit on your throne so he basically comes in and confirms all of this stuff um, and tells him look all these guys are praising Adinajah's king long live the king and stuff like that and David all of a sudden goes whoa so in verse 28 then King David said call in Bathsheba so she came into the king's presence and she stood before him and the king took an oath as surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground, kneeling before the king. May my Lord King David live forever. Again, we don't know why uh, this was this. Maybe God told him. Not everything is recorded here that's going on behind the scenes. We don't know. Uh, was it just because he loved her so much after going through so much pain of the huge mistake and the wrong thing that he'd done? Who knows? I, I don't know. I don't have all the answers to these things. But all we know is that he absolutely was determined to make Solomon king and not the older son. So then Bathsheba bows down and says, long, long live the king, blah, 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 blah. And, Dick, and Kate, uh, King David in verse 32 says, call in Zadok, Nathan, and Benaniah. And when they came before the king, he said, Look, take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And there have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! So anyway, so they go and do this thing and they now anoint Solomon the king and they put him on, uh, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on David's throne and a great big party. Uh, we read about it in uh, verse 39. Zadok, the priest, took the horn of the oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. And then shout, sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him playing flutes and rejoicing greatly. So they were boogieing down so hard the ground shook with the sound. It was party time! Celebrate. I mean, they're going nuts, all right? They're having a great time. They're celebrating. The ground literally, when you get thousands of people all joining in on the same thing, it's quite the event. Well, so now, Adinajah and all the guests who were with him uh, heard all this noise as they were finishing their feast. Remember, they're up there partying wherever they're at, and they're just kind of hanging out, and they're drinking, and they're so happy because I'm the king now, and everything's going to be great. And they hear all this noise. And uh, on hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab, the general, says, what's the meaning of all the noise in the city? And even as he was speaking, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest, who Abathar was also on the wrong side here, uh, arrived. And Adinajah says, come in, a worthy man like you must be bringing good news. And Jonathan says, no, 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 this is very bad. Our Lord, the King David, has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, son of Joida, the Carathites, the Bladozites, the Ites, and the other Ites. And they put him on a king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king. And from there they've gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, 
Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. And also the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord the King David, saying, may God make Solomon's name more famous than yours, and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed. I don't know how one does that, but he did. Um, I'm set up on his bed and bound worship, I suppose. Uh, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who's allowed my eyes to see successor on my throne. So they made it a big deal. David has said it's Solomon. Well, at all of this, Adonijah's guests scatter like cockroaches. <laughs> you know, whoa, I don't want to be at this party. You know, whoops, wrong side. You know, so they all just take off. And Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. So he gets before the altar and he grabs a hold of it. And when Solomon said, hey, Adonijah's freaking out. Uh, he's afraid of you. He's clinging to the horns of the altar. And he says, let King Solomon swear to me that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So Solomon replies, look, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men... And they brought him down from the altar and a diligent came and bowed before the king. He humbled himself and Solomon said, okay, you're cool. Go home. Well, when, now chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon. He said, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Talking about, he said, I'm about to die. So be strong. Show yourself a man. I like that. Show yourself a man. Be a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses. So that you may prosper in all you do wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to me. And the promise is this. If your descendants watch how they live. And if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul. You will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So now you yourself know what Joab, uh, son of Zariah, did to me. And... Uh, uh, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's army, Abner. Remember, he killed Abner. And then Amasa, he's the guy who walked up and said, how you doing? And cut him. He killed them, shedding their blood in peace time as if in battle. And with that blood stained, the belt around his waist and the saddles on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. And then he says, uh, you know, remember Barzilia, whatever his name is. He was a nice guy. And Remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite. And he's basically given the final words and stuff like that. Basically, his final words were, be nice to this guy, be nice to this guy, and kill Joab. (laughs) Now, I'm surprised David never killed Joab. Remember, we've talked about this. Joab was really on the edge all the time, killing people he wasn't supposed to kill not protecting what David said to protect. I mean, he was, he was kind of a loose cannon. And then he would be very disrespectful to David at times, even though David kind of needed it. And uh, so why David himself never did it, I don't know. Maybe because uh, David felt a, a certain degree of loyalty to him. Obviously not enough to keep him from killing him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, his final words were, you know, bless this guy, bless this guy, bless this guy, kill Joab. And then we read verse 10. Then David rested with his fathers. And he was buried in the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And he reigned 40 years over Israel. I'm sorry, city of David would have been uh, Bethlehem. Okay. And he reigned 40 years over Israel. Seven years in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his rule was firmly established. 
Interesting stuff. Okay, now, in, in the next rest of this chapter, um, Solomon kind of solidifies his, his power. Um, and let me read this. This next story is just kind of weird. So Adinijah, now remember, he got off. Solomon let him go. Uh, he's the son of the good-looking lady with all the great-looking kids. Goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom. And Bathsheba says, do you come peacefully? And he says, yes, peacefully. And he says, I have something to say to you. And she said, you may say it. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king, but things changed. And the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now, I just have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. He said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you. Ask him to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Do you know who Abishag, the Shunammite, was? She was the good-looking babe who was the hot water bottle. All right? So this guy shows up and says, can I get the bottle? You know, this lady is like Ho Chi Mama. Okay? And Bathsheba says, well, very well. I will speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak for him to Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, sat down on his throne. And he had a throne brought for the king's mother. And she sat down at his right hand and all the pomp and circumstance. Here's mom. And she says, I have one small request uh, to make of you. Do not refuse me. Make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. Liar, because he does. Anyway, she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adinijah. Now, for some reason, this really torqued him off. He got so angry that his brother would ask for this girl. I don't quite get it. Maybe because he took it as a sign of insult because this was the girl who laid with his father, the king. It was also his father. Um, she was still a virgin. She never had sex. I, I don't know. Was she a major power player at this point in Israel? It doesn't say. And I'm sure there's all kinds of really brilliant men who know. And I don't. But anyway, um, all we know is that when King Solomon heard this, he answered his mother, Why do you request, request Abishag the Shunammite for Adinijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abathar and Joab. And he just goes off and felt incredibly insulted by this. Again, I don't think Adinijah thought of it in terms of an insult. Or why would he do it? You know, when he goes to Bathsheba and said, look, you're the mom and, and, and if you go talk to him and, and for me and see if you could pull this off and it'd be great if I could have her as my wife and but at some level it just really ticks off Solomon and uh, he basically kills everybody <laughs> then the king Solomon swore verse 21 may God deal with me be it ever so severely if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request and now as surely as the Lord lives he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David has founded a dynasty for me as he promised Adonijah shall be put to death today so king Solomon gave orders to Benaniah or Benaniah Benaniah, that's a Japanese steakhouse. Um, uh, son of Joida, and he struck down Adinijah, and he died. So he goes out and he kills him for making this request. There you have it. Um, and then to Abath- Abathar, the priest, uh, he says, go back to your field. So he basically says, you deserve to die, but I'm not going to kill you. I'll cut you some slack. 
because you carried the ark of the Lord and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it, it spoke the word of God. So he removes Abathar from being the priest. And then when the re- news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adinijah, though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and he took hordes of the altar just like uh, Adinijah uh, did earlier. And King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was and stuff. And, and Solomon said, go in there and kill him. Strike him down. So Benaiah enters the tent and says to Joab, the king says, come out. But he said, no, I will die here. And he goes and reports to the king. Joab says, he will die here. This is how Joab answered me. And then the king said, fine, do as he says. And, uh, and so clear me of my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. For the Lord will repay him for the blood he shed because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked two men and killed them with the sword, Abner and Amasa. Uh, they were better men and more upright than he. And may the guilt of their blood rest on the head of Joab and his descendants forever. But on David and his descendants and his throne, may there be the Lord's peace forever. So he goes in and he strikes him down and he kills him. And he was buried in his own land and that was the end of it. Um, and then the king sent for Shimi and said to him, uh, build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. Uh, the day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. So he basically tells Shimi. Shimi's the guy, remember, who cursed David and stuff like that, but he made peace with David. Uh, Solomon obviously doesn't really trust the guy. says, okay, you can build your house, but don't you leave. You go out outside of Jerusalem, I will kill you. So basically, as, as we read, verse 39 says, about three years later, two of Shimi's slaves run off. So he goes running after them to try and get them back. And it brings them back. And Solomon says, I told you, do not leave. And Solomon kills him. And uh, wow. So Shimi now has also bit the dust. Uh, we see in verse 46, then the king gave order to Benaniah, son of Joida, and he went out and struck down Shimi too. So now Shimi's dead, and the kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. So really, basically, any connection or attachment in any way, shape, or form to the older brother or to other people who had conspired against David, or other, these guys now had all been dealt with. And wiped him out. For some reason it was the request. I need to study this more. I feel sorry that I, I don't know more about it. Uh, but I'm sure someone has some idea. I, I'm curious as to why the. Uh, I'll see if I can learn something. But uh, why that request is what sent Solomon off. But for some reason that was it. And then he basically wipes out anybody else. Who has anything to do with anything on this thing. And now Solomon's kingdom starts. And this is the most amazing kingdom in terms of kings while David is thought of as the greatest king you don't hear Jesus referred to as the son of Solomon he was always referred to as the son of David David was the uh, the great king who brought the nations together and was the psalmist and anointed of God and stuff like that but in terms of prosperity and success and victory and building and an empire like like the pharaohs of Egypt. I mean, it all happens under Solomon. And he builds the great Solomon's temple and, and all this stuff. So we're going to read this and find out how he was so successful, why he was so incredibly blessed. He was rich like you cannot imagine. And we're going to talk in terms of how many tons of gold 
he'd get a year. You know, I mean, it's just truly amazing and why he was successful. But then he, as so many men do, start messing up and gets in trouble with God. But uh, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating story. So we want to take a a look at Solomon and and jump around. Because Solomon, like his father, also has a few books in the Bible. Uh, David has Psalms, but Solomon, Solomon has the book of Proverbs. And he has the Song of Solomon, uh, quite the racy little novel there. And uh, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, what's it called? Ecclesiastes, which he's really depressed in Ecclesiastes. And when you read that, and we'll show you, and we'll jump around a little bit so we can kind of put it all in context so you can see what he's going through and why he was so depressed uh, when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. So again, a major player in the Bible. Uh, we'll take a look. And then we'll kind of s- skip over and just hit some of the highlights and the rest of the kings as we kind of wrap up uh, this whole big history of, of Israel and where it came from. So, pretty cool. We are finished. Let us close the service. The ushers can come at this time. And the musicians can come back up. Wherever y'all are hiding, there they are. Oh, you know what I wanted to do was let you know. Do you guys have that slide for the uh, show that we're doing? Did they ever give you a slide? Oh, you guys saw it already. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So check it. We are, uh, we're bringing my TV show that we, we shot the first season in Nashville and we shot the next bunch in Kansas City. We're bringing it home to Green Bay. So we're going to be shooting it here. So uh, this is uh, not going to be next week, but the week after, November 3rd and 4th, okay, and which is a Tuesday night and a Wednesday night. Now, what we're going to do on that Wednesday night is we're going to swap with the teens. They get the big room. We get their room down there, and we're going to fill it up, and I want you all to be part of this show that we do, and as many as, as we can get, try to come out on Tuesday night as well for it. It's going to be fun. We're going to tape probably three shows. They're half hour. They're going to go very quick. Boom, boom, boom in a row. And that'll be our Wednesday night service. But it'll be a chance for us to kind of bring it all home here so that as the whole world watches the show, it's going to be from our home in our church with our people right here in Green Bay. Yes. So so we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it and and try and get as many as as you to come on out uh, and get your faces on TV. It'll be fun. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings, for your word, all your gifts that you give to us. And now we give back to you, God, as David, a man after your own heart, who said, I will not worship unless it costs me something. And Father, help us as we give back into your kingdom. Bless these gifts, we pray, for the advancement of your kingdom in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.